What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to My Social Life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. And before we jump into today's conversation with Jordan Tarver, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. Number one, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review. The more positive ratings and reviews you get, the more it helps new people find the show, and it really helps to grow the community that we're developing here. And if you're one of those people that have recently found the podcast, welcome. I'm very excited to have you here. Make sure you subscribe, stay tuned for future episodes. I drop a brand new interview every single Monday and a takeaways episode where I review and break down each episode by myself every single Thursday. And one other thing before we get into today's podcast, be sure to screenshot this, post it to your Instagram story, tag at my social life podcast and at Jordan Tarver, and I'll feature you on the account and send you a message as well. Now, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Jordan Tarver. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to My Social Life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly, and today we're joined by Jordan Tarver. And Jordan is a van lifer, world traveler, photographer, author of Moments to Whom It May Concern, and the upcoming You Deserve This Shit. He's also a writer for Fit Small Business, an online website with over 4 million monthly readers. And I'm very excited to have him here on the podcast today. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm stoked to be here and I'm um, glad we can connect. Yeah, I'm stoked to have you here, man. Where I want to start, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. So originally, you're from Sonoma County, California, correct? Yeah, just uh, about an hour north of San Francisco. Okay. And so if, if I'm not mistaken, you went to, well, you went, you were in a Montessori school from K to seven, right? Uh, K to six. Yeah, Montessori school. It was um, one schoolhouse. And about 40 students tops. And that included all of the, um, you know, the grades at that, at the school I was going to is the campus was first through sixth grade. So yeah, rather small school, but very hands-on and creative learning experience. And so when you mean like hands-on, like how does it differ then other than being all the students, every grade in the same room, like how does it differ in terms of like delivery of the education? Like alter like different forms of education is something that's becoming more interesting to me as I get older and look back on my experience in school. Yeah. So, I mean, the Montessori program is, it's definitely focused on science and art and um, much of the learning done in the school is done at your own pace. So for example, if you're in first grade, but you're, you know, proficient in math, you could actually be in third grade math lessons and everything. Um, You use like physical tools and um, different types of structures let's call them um like to learn your long division so it's very hands-on learning your own pace and um there's actually no grades so i didn't receive um a typical grade like you would here in america um until i was in seventh grade that's crazy so then with that in mind like, how did that form of education like how do you think that shaped you as a kid growing up i mean looking back at it now from a more mature standpoint i think that it really built the foundation of my entire life. And I don't know really what direction I'd be heading without it. I think it really taught me the, the tools that I use in my everyday life today. And it gave me that freedom to explore uh, my own curiosity and, and dive into um, my own creativity. And then speaking of that, I've heard you, I believe it was on Bobby's podcast, the purpose of the youth where you said that your parents when they kind of allowed you to pursue whatever it was creatively, like there was almost, there was no pressure from your parents to pursue any given path. And I was curious how that air cover from your parents growing up to pursue whatever your interest was 
also affected you coupled with the fact that you're in this Montessori school as well? Yeah, I mean, I think about it and talk about it a lot, but my parents really created the space for us to uh, define the path that we wanted to follow. And although I was inspired and and looked up to my father and always wanted to follow in his footsteps, they didn't ever force us into a specific direction. And I think I want to speak for myself, but I also have three siblings. I think that allowed us all um, to feel empowered to do exactly what we want to do now in life. And it's like, what did your parents do then when you were growing up? Um, so my mom worked for a one of her friends' family business, and now she works actually for the school that um, we all went to. And then my dad has been um, in the wine industry for over thirty years, and um, he is, you know, a marketer, sales guy by trade. That's awesome. And one thing too, still sticking with kind of what your childhood growing up. I believe again it was on Bobby's podcast where you said you worked with special the special needs community growing up. I was curious like what that looked like in terms of you helping them and what are some of the lessons you took away from that time? Yeah, so I actually was a I was a camp counselor for uh probably around 5 years um through high school and a little bit into college and um there was a there was a certain time throughout each summer where I would work with the special needs community and we would hold a camp for them and easily one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had in my life. Um, it's something that I am ever so grateful for that I got that experience because I feel like it's not something you come by often. And I think those experiences actually taught me that gratitude, right? It taught me how to be grateful for what I have because not everyone has um, the privilege to um, live like I am right now. And I think uh, ultimately that's like the, one of the biggest lessons I learned from that. And how old were you when you were when you were volunteering? Um, so I started volunteering when I was thirteen. I volunteered um, at that camp for three years, putting in five hundred hours of volunteer hours, uh, and then I was hired on as a paid staff um, when I was sixteen, I think. And I worked there until I was about twenty-one. Oh wow, that's awesome! That's really yeah. So cool. I, w- wow. I was with that camp for seven years, and it's actually a camp that we went to um besides myself and my siblings were actually campers there growing up so we've been very intertwined in that community which is back in sonoma county for a long time and i actually want to ask like during that time 13 to maybe like 17 18 before you left for college when you were in high school what was kind of like what was your goal or your ambition with life at that point in time prior to getting to college i mean at that time i really didn't know what i wanted to do i'd also looking back i didn't know who i was right and I think that's a huge part of um, coming into touch of where you want to go. So I don't think I really had a very defined direction of anything I aspired to do. I was very involved with sports and that was a big passion of mine. So at the time that was really my anchor. Okay. And then, so ultimately, even though you didn't necessarily know exactly what you wanted to do, your decision for where you went to school was an important one to you, right? Like you were picking more so based off of location than anything, right? And you're talking about college, right? Correct. Sorry. Yeah. My bad. Yeah. So, um, I knew I wanted to go to Southern California. Um, I knew I wanted to explore a new area and see what else was out there. So I pretty much said that I was going to go to whatever school I got accepted to. Um, and that happened to be Cal State Fullerton in Orange County, which is just, uh, next to Disneyland. But you almost went to a different school first, right? Like there was another one that you almost went to instead. Yeah, so I was deciding um, between three schools, um, which was Chico, UC Santa Cruz, and Fullerton, um, and I was actually heavily in between Chico and Fullerton, and I wasn't going to go check out Fullerton, which is um, almost like a scary thought now because my life would be so different if I didn't make that decision, 
and my mom was like, hey, Jordan, uh, I think we should definitely go check this place out. You've always told me you wanted to move to Southern California. I don't think it would, you know, be a good idea not to go there. Um, so hesitantly, I, I eventually agreed to it and we flew down to Orange County. And I still remember to this day the exact moment um, where we stepped on the campus right in front of the Cal State Fullerton sign. I remember looking around, I turned to my mom and said, this is the one. And that's when I knew. And, um, you know, the rest is history. And like, what was it about it at that point that made you be like, yeah, this is the one and kind of following that up. What's different? Like how is Northern California and Southern California different? As someone up in Canada that's never been to California, I just don't exactly understand the dynamics and how the two are like, I've heard like almost completely different states. Yeah. I mean, they definitely are um, two completely different states. I think the culture, the people are different. Um, The pace of life is very different. I would say, at least where I'm from in Northern California, a very small town called Brunner Park, very slow uh, life compared to what I was living in Orange County and now in LA. Um, and I think once I really stepped foot on that campus, it was that gentle reminder I needed that was like, hey, like you wanted to do this, you wanted to explore what else is out there, like the opportunity is here. And I feel like I recognized that and I immediately knew like this was the right decision. Mm-hmm. And you ended up going to finance and going into finance. What was it about finance that drew you to it at that time as a 17, 18 year old? Um, I think I was att- at the time I was attracted to money. And I think that is possibly an attraction for a lot of people. And so I felt like heading through the financial route would uh, yield me a, a sexy income, which is not something I'm driven by. I mean, obviously, I want to be successful and, um, you know, have a great career, but I don't think I'm, I don't solely chase uh, my paycheck. But at the time, that was what was attracted to me. And uh, my dad, just growing up watching my dad be in the business world, I think um, it looked exciting and it's something that I wanted to get involved in. Okay. And then another big aspect of your college experience was the fraternity Phi Kappa Tau. Did I say that right? Phi Kappa Tau. Phi Kappa Tau. Yeah. So it was like when you got to college, did you know you wanted to join a frat or was it after being on campus and like, did you get recruited? Like, what does that dynamic look like? Like, was that something you always wanted to do? Yeah. So um, take a couple steps back, I guess. Another like factor that came into play when I was deciding between schools was the Greek system. Um, both my older brothers were a part of um, fraternities. They went to San Diego State and Long Beach um, and seeing them do all that kind of stuff and the kind of network they built was looked interesting to me and definitely something I wanted to do. And my parents were totally on board with it um, as long as it was something that we financed ourselves. And so I definitely knew from the beginning that was something I was going to do. Um, so that definitely did come into play when I was looking and applying to schools. Okay. And like from your experience, is there a negative stigma with being in a fraternity? Like the people on the outside almost not necessarily get it when you're in a fraternity? Yeah. I mean, I, there's definitely a reputation. Um, and so that's, I don't think people are wrong about that however i do think maybe the reputation could be skewed um depending with the specific group of uh guys you're you're talking about i think there's a general um perception of you know greek life as a whole here in america but i think it changes when you go to each chapter at each different university and what are some some memories some of like your favorite memories from your time whether it being at school with your fraternity or even just at school in general like what are some of your highlights from your time at cal state um i i, I lived in the fraternity house for two years um and so that like as a whole that experience was really incredible because uh we, we had 15 
guys living in the house and those 15 guys happened to be your 15 best friends. So nothing could really beat that at the time. Um, and then what came from that was just lasting relationships and the connections that I have to like to this day. And I still talk to these people. Um, and also just camping was a huge part of my life. And that's kind of when I ignited that passion and the passion for photography, um, which was the spark to all my creativity. Um, so really looking at those two things, I think that's what I think about a lot when I look back at college. And then, but your intro to photography, if I'm not mistaken, came through your fraternity, right? Like someone in, in, in your fraternity had a camera, right? And that's kind of where you first got exposed to the world of photography. Yeah. So like the fraternity, I, I really think it was the foundation for a lot of things in my life. And I don't know where I'd be really without that um, experience. And yeah, my closest friend, Ryan Velasic, was um, my first roommate in the house. And he was always shooting. And I was really, I, know, I knew from a young age, I liked photography. I used to have like a little camera that I'd bring on family vacations and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I kind of lost touch with it. And once I met him, he would let me borrow his camera because I actually couldn't afford one yet. And so I just, would just shoot um, either if we were camping or even just like parties at the house. And we would just use his camera for fun. And that was kind of like, the first time I was starting to get attached to the, um, the art and craft. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately at what point were you able to get your own camera? I think it was about like a year after I had, um, borrowed his, my um, parents actually helped me, um, you know, get my first one. Um, and then that was really like the start of the whole, the whole ordeal of being like, just so in love with the, the art. And as someone like, like, like you said, when you first entered college, you were, you were focused on chasing the money. Was there ever a thought with photography when you first got your camera to pursue it as a money-making option? Like, would you ever look at, look at shooting weddings or anything like that? Or was it purely from the beginning with you, just a hobby and only a hobby at the beginning? I think it started as a hobby. Um, it, I definitely, as, as a business major, and um, let's take a step back, not, not specifically as a finance major, but as a business major my thought process is always like, how can I turn this into a career? Um, how can I monetize this art? How can I monetize this craft? And so that was always the initial thought with photography. And then I started to learn that you don't have to monetize everything you do. You can do things out of pure joy because it makes you happy and because it puts a smile on your face, right? And so that was the realization I had with photography was like, hey, maybe this is something that I want to keep as a hobby um, and not something where I'm stressing about, oh shit, like I got to make money doing this. Um, and so once I had the understanding, I kind of took a step back. Um, and now I have a different approach with photography. Mm -hmm. And then having that realization that that not everything has to be done for money. When you graduated, did you, you didn't pursue finance right away, right? Like that wasn't, once you graduated, like that wasn't your number one goal anymore, right? Right. So one, once I graduated, I was living in Newport Beach um, and I was working a restaurant job. And so I quit my job and our lease had ended because they were just uh, leases the length of the school year. And so I thought, um, what a perfect time to go travel. And this is something that my siblings have done and my parents are encouraging. And so I actually, um, instead of jumping right into the workforce and following you know, the words on my, my degree, I decided to fly to Europe and do um, a solo backpacking trip. And I actually want to ask you about that trip, but I want to talk about before you even, before you booked the trip, 232 weeks ago, you posted on Instagram with the following caption. After staring at my laptop screen for over an hour, I decided to purchase a one-way ticket to London. See you in June, Europe. 
during that time where you're staring at your laptop screen for an hour, what's kind of running through your head at that exact moment in time? First off, I have chills. Just <laughs> listen, I haven't heard that caption in 232 weeks. So um, that's wild that it's been that long. Um, but yeah, staring, I, I was nervous, for sure nervous. I was supposed to go with a friend originally, um, and he had landed a job where they wanted him to come train for that job in New York City. Um, during the summer so he obviously couldn't come and so it was it was a big pivotal moment in my life and it was a big decision for me because I I wasn't the person that would do that I was very unsure of myself I wasn't very confident um, with who I was and so to do something where I'd be going overseas by myself for what I thought would have been five weeks um, was very much so daunting Mm-hmm. And then, so how does your family react when you told them that you ended up booking this trip anyway, even though your friend couldn't go with you and that you were going by yourself? <laughs> I'm actually laughing right now because I'm pretty sure my mom was like, what? Cause like <laughs> she, she know, you know, she, my parents know me better than anyone else. And they know that was like, so out of the ordinary, um, for the youngest son to do. Um, so I think they were, they were surprised, but they were supportive. Um, and that's all that you can really ask for. And how long between your friend saying he couldn't go anymore was it until you booked the trip solo? Um, I think around maybe month, give or take um, a little bit of time. I know that I originally tried to look for other people because I was actually like too nervous to go by myself. And then I couldn't just figure it out and my, if my friends couldn't work it out. And so I actually kind of saw it as like a, a, a sign or like a test from the universe saying like, hey, like this is your opportunity to change your life. Like, are you going to do it? Mm. And speaking of being scared, can you bring me, instead of that moment when you booked the trip, can you bring me to the moment where you're sitting at the gate with your boarding pass in hand, knowing you're about to embark on what you thought at the time would be a five-week trip to Europe by yourself? Like, are you scared in that moment when you're waiting or are you just excited? A little bit of both. I think there's definitely mixed emotions. Um, I don't know if it actually had hit me yet though. So I don't think while I was waiting at my gate that I could actually process what was going on. I don't think I really understood that I was going on a solo backpacking trip until I landed in London. Okay. And and we've kind of mentioned a little bit here that we keep saying what you thought would be five weeks, but ultimately ended up being 12 weeks. It was three months. Can you kind of walk me through that trip? Like you started in London, where'd you go from there? Ultimately, what made you stay for three months instead of five weeks? Like, can you just kind of run through kind of like the trip as a whole? Yeah. And so I'll try to do this in a bird's eye view. Um, so we don't take up too much time telling the whole story of the trip. Um, but I flew into London and the first thing I do is get on a train, go in the wrong direction. So it's like, all right, <laughs> this is going to be a journey. Um, and so the goal was to travel um via train so i only took one flight from london to amsterdam and then once i got over to amsterdam i took trains all the way around um the entire continent to portugal so i in total i believe i went to around uh, 10 different countries but there was one specific country um that really plays an important part of the story and that was spain but more specifically barcelona and i stayed at this hostel and i met easily the most incredible people that i've met on that entire journey and trip um, made really close connections with them. And it was really difficult for me to leave when I was going to Portugal and I was going to actually fly home from Portugal. And so when I got to Portugal, my flight was actually coming up the next day to fly back to uh, the States. And I was actually in Portugal with my sister who was living in Paris at the time. 
we're in the very southern point of Portugal in Sagres. I'm at a surf hostel and I started to talk to her like, hey, I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have a house. I don't have a job. Like, why am I going home? And she's like, you really have no reason to. And so I looked at flights, talked to my parents, and it seemed like the best decision at the time was to fly back to uh, Barcelona and start volunteering at that hostel where I met all those people. Okay. And so for the last half of the trip, then did you stay pretty much exclusively in Spain or were you like taking weekend trips to other countries? Um, once I started working at the hostel, yeah, I kind of made it my home base and tried to live a different life than I was for the prior five weeks. And so instead of jumping around to different spots, I really made that place my home. Um, I lived in a flat with uh, 13 of my workmates. And so, yeah, I really just embraced Barcelona and partially because I was on a tight budget, but also was looking forward to not having to travel anywhere, but also be somewhere new. Do you have any, like, what are some crazy stories you have from the trip? I always ask people when it comes to travel in this podcast for like some crazy stories or experiences you had on your travels. Um, I mean, I don't, it's hard to say crazy because there was so much happening all the time. I, I think it was all so unfamiliar. I think one of the things that I remember most was when I was traveling from Budapest to Venice, Italy, it was a 15 hour train ride um which is not recommended <laughs> especially if you're staying up until like 4 a.m the night before um which i did so obviously bad choice by me but um i had missed the first leg or the second leg of the tr the the journey by maybe like 30 minutes because my first train was delayed and so then i did i couldn't hop on a train that had um a non-stop route so i had to take <laughs> ridiculous amounts of stops which made it a 15 hour journey and i think that was like kind of one of the most ridiculous and also like headache situations i dealt out there mm -hmm. and you've described this trip as an intensive master class for your own life what are some of the lessons you learned during that three-month period i really learned i think the power of kindness um, and positivity I think that is kindness is really the foundation of everything I do now. And it's really the foundation of my life. I think everything I've done, I've built off of being a kind person um, to other people and to myself. And, and so that was a lesson I actually learned um, early on because I realized, okay, well, I'm here alone. I need to make some connections. What's the easiest way to make an impact on someone's life where uh, we can build something together. And to me, that was to be, be positive and offer them kindness and like care for them. And so from that, like that really allowed me to blossom into so many different areas of life. And now looking back on this, how do you think the trip would have differed had your friend or anyone else been able to go with you? And that's not like trying to, to, to say a slight or anything on your friend, but more so to people listening, the value of traveling alone and traveling solo. Yeah. And I mean, that's a great question. I get this question a lot. Um, and I think you, you you said it right. It's not. It wouldn't have been bad that if I traveled with someone else. It just would have been different. Um, when you're traveling alone, you have the ability to not have to cater to someone else's schedule, um, which is a huge thing when you're somewhere and there's something you want to do specifically. But maybe if you were with someone, you wouldn't be able to have that experience. So it really sets you up to experience the things that you're supposed to experience, um, and then also makes it more challenging because you don't have someone to fall back on um, all the time. And it puts you in the most uncomfortable situation possible, which is the best thing possible um, when you're traveling because you'll learn the most about yourself.
and another way you learned about yourself was through journaling. This, again, this is, I think I read this on your website that you said this was the trip where you really connected with writing. And before you left for the trip, you bought a journal. Had you been done any journaling prior to that or was this the first time you'd bought a journal? No, this was, yeah, this is the first time I was going to ever really dive into writing. So it was completely new to me. But my, my goal before leaving was that I wanted to make this trip the most impactful that it possibly could be. And I wanted to get the most from it um, that I could. And so I found that if I was going to be riding every day, that was a way that I could, one, learn lessons while I was there, but also have something to reflect on in the days to come after returning. And so was your journaling, was it more so this is what happened today or just lessons you learned as a result of what happened or maybe even a combination of both? Uh, primarily a combination of both. I think, um, I think when I was saying this is what happened today, when I reflect on those kind of journal entries now, then I can see the lessons. Um, I think at the time, my mindset was, let's just write about what's going on. So in the coming years um, and forever, I can remember this trip um, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. That's just it. I recently read a book, uh, Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. And he was talking to someone about journaling in that book. And they were saying that through journaling, you can almost time travel and bring yourself back to those moments in time because you can actually get an understanding of how you were feeling, what was going through your head at that time versus with video, you can visually see it, but you don't necessarily get the actual feelings of what was going on. So that's a cool thing with journaling that I recently learned. How often do you go back and read it? Uh, it's, it's funny that yes, now, because I hadn't been going back at all um and i don't know why until like i think the other night i was here at home with my girlfriend and we were just talking about that trip and journaling in general and i have the journal in my closet and i was like i'm gonna go get this out and um, i started looking at it and i was just like wow like i can't believe i did this like i can't believe i wrote 100 plus pages of a journal and that i have this and and so now I actually have it on my nightstand just there as a constant reminder, um, whether I pick it up and read it or just looking at it, um, I think can be a good reminder. Mm-hmm. And sometimes too, this is one thing I was really curious about with your journal. Sometimes you don't necessarily write. Sometimes you draw what's in front of you. When did you start doing that? I started drawing in my journal probably maybe like two years ago. I was in Yosemite National Park here in California um, and we were driving up in the car and I first off, I'm fascinated by Yosemite. I have a very deep rooted connection with that valley. Um, And I just wanted to start drawing Half Dome, which is um, one of the most insane rocks in the valley. And I drew it and it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And I kind of found enjoyment in that because it allowed me to see details um, in something I've been looking at forever that I haven't seen before. Um, And so from that drawing, I was kind of just enamored by like what you could find out by, you know, doodling or sketching something in front of you. So how often do you try and do the doodles versus the writing? Uh, I primarily write. I think um, when I'm doing sketches, it's usually when I'm um, camping or, or on a road trip because I like to sketch uh, landscapes and nature. Um, I don't really find myself doing sketches at home. However, I do have a writing project called note collective and that's more of um, doodles or kind of like one-line um, thought-provoking sentences or kind of uh, journal entries. Okay. So so when you wrote that in Yosemite, and that was after Europe, so you weren't doing any of the doodling or drawing in Europe? Yeah. I mean, I, I did one doodle in Europe, um, which is 
a funny story itself is I didn't want to draw in my journal because I wanted my journal strictly to be for writing. And we, me and my housemate were um, thinking about getting tattoos out there just as a reminder. And, and so we actually got a piece of toilet paper from our bathroom and I drew the first edition of the tattoo that I have now on my ankle on a piece of toilet paper. And because I am such an indecisive person, I kept that piece of toilet paper with me for six months um, to decide if it was something I really wanted. And then when I got home, I took it um, to my tattoo artist who uh, made it 10 times better than it was. <laughs> Are you able to share what you drew on that? Yeah, for sure. So um, it was a compass. And coming out of the top of the compass was a mountain range. And at the bottom of the compass was uh, tree lines. And so I have that tattooed on my ankle now. And it's not only a reminder of the trip. It's not only a reminder of who I became on the trip. Um, but it's just a, it reminds me of where my spirit and soul is really connected and deep rooted in which is the outdoors. Mm. And one thing that so you might not have been drawing too much in Europe other than drawing the first sketch of that tattoo, but you were taking a lot of photos at the time because you brought your camera with you as well. And I was curious how through Europe or even prior to Europe, how you were kind of able to craft your photography style? Like how did you come to the style of photography you're at today? You know, just through trial and error, I don't know, just being excited about being somewhere new and trying to think outside of the box of a photo that someone else couldn't take. I don't think... Um, I tried to do anything in particular. I think the best style in any art comes from naturally doing something um, unique and, and not trying to conform to what other people think is like the quote unquote right way to do something. So I think it, it's just one of those things that with time, it kind of just formed into what it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind that you kind of try and look for the angles that no one else looks for. Are there any photographers, anyone that inspired you or influenced you at the time? Or was it pretty much all just figuring it out on your own? Um, I mean, I definitely have people that have inspired me. I think a lot of the times my closest friends um, sometimes are my biggest inspirations. Um, my best friend Ryan Vlasic is an incredible photographer. Um, another close friend of mine, Troy Rupp, was also someone who I was inspired by and who was in photography. And the three of us were really kind of this like close knit group of friends that shared uh, the same kind of passions for photography and travel and camping. Um, so I think I've, I've always been inspired by the people I um, surround myself with. Oh, that's interesting. It's cool to hear that like you're like, you're the product of the five people you surround yourself with the most. So it's cool to hear that you're drawing inspiration from all those people. For sure. I wanted to ask too. So Europe was great, but from my understanding, the kind of readjusting after Europe wasn't the greatest. Like, how hard was it for you to come home? It's difficult, man. I mean, when you're traveling with no job and you really don't have anywhere you need to be and you have all hours in the day to do anything and then you come home back to reality, it's definitely a, a, it's a shock. Like, you have to readjust um, to get back in the groove of, of the culture of where you're living in now. Uh, but I think I was able to ease back into it because I didn't jump right into a job, which was definitely beneficial for me. Okay. Cause you spent the first couple months back just living on a friend's couch, right? Yeah. So I got back, um, obviously didn't have a job, didn't have a house cause I couldn't sign a lease. Um, and so yeah, a group of my friends had let me crash on their couch for what I thought was going to be not that long. And it turned into two months and I actually didn't have a job for those two months. And that's when. I wanted to fill my time with something intentional and worth worthwhile. And so I decided that it would be a good 
good idea to transcribe my journal from my trip into a book. So that's how I filled my time. And that book ultimately ended up becoming Moment to Who It May Concern, Volume 1, right? Yeah, yeah. It, um, I didn't think it was going to become what it is today, but you know, it made it there. And so what, what's the process then of taking your journal and turning it into a book? Were you just purely transcribing your journal into a book to get published or were you changing it and molding it into something new? So I transcribed all the journal entries um, and then removed the ones that didn't really add to the add value to the story. And then the way I molded it into something new was that I actually went in and every so often when a lesson was learned, um, I put a present day reflection um, looking back on the previous journal entry. So looking back on that a specific time on the trip and then talked about what the lesson was and so I can make it a teaching moment for other people. Okay. And one thing too, so did you self-publish this book? Yeah, self-published through Amazon. So like what, how, through Amazon, it's like, what's that process look like then to get a book published through Amazon? You know, Amazon, they, they have a, a great uh, program set up called KDP or it used to be called Create Space, um, which is awesome for any aspiring author out there. It really allows you and gives you access to getting your message out. Interesting. So is it almost like print on demand for books or like, what does it look like when you enter this program? Yeah. So you can, um, you can order books on hand, um, at an author price or, um, you can list it on Amazon and then they will print per order. And then you can also upload it as an ebook. Okay. That's awesome. And so how did it feel then to get your, a physical copy of your book for the first time? Surreal for sure. Like it, I mean, sometimes to this day, like I, I don't really believe that I wrote a book. It's it's weird to look at it and think like, hey, th this is mine. Like my name's on that. And this is my product. This is my creation. And this is my message. And it's it's definitely trippy. Mm -hmm. And you said like you never would have envisioned what it has turned into today. Like in your words, what has it turned into and led to? I mean, it was it was the first piece of real writing that I ever published. And Growing up, I never was the best writer, and I never really enjoyed writing. Um, so to see that I could do something like that gave me the confidence that this was a passion that I should and I wanted to follow. Um, so it really set me off in the direction where I am now, and writing is my life. I live and breathe writing. Um, it's a part of me at all hours of the day. Um, so yeah, it really you know, created that space for me to keep going with writing. Mm -hmm. But but in the beginning, when you were first working on this book and publishing it, was there a fear that like not many people are going to read this? Or were you more so just entirely just enthralled in the process of writing and publishing your own book, regardless of how many people ended up purchasing it and reading it? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because I think that's a, a fear for a, lo a lot of creatives out there. There's a block that they don't want to release something that um, doesn't do as well as they thought. So I think for me, I didn't set those expectations. I think my expectations with the book was more so to prove to myself that I can do something bigger than myself. And also a big thing in the book was that I wanted to write it. I wanted to publish it so that in 10 years or however many longer that like my family created, it, my kids created, it and then their kids could read it. And then so that this is a story of me that could be passed through generations, but the original idea was never uh, worried about how many people are going to read it right off the bat. And it was just something that I wanted to create um, for my community. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm sure too partnering with Amazon where they just kind of print by order or you just buy however many you want at the author price probably offsets a little bit of that fear because it, from my understanding, it doesn't require a ton of financial investment to get your book made, correct? Yeah, it's it's a pretty um, inexpensive route to go. Um, and so it, it takes that that financial burden off of you um, to get it out and get it started. And so essentially, like for just kind of a little bit more in the details of the program, you upload like the cover art and everything and basically all the like, how do you format it? Do you work with Amazon at all? Or do you just upload it entirely how you'd like it to be formatted and they just print it to those specs? Yeah, I actually worked with a freelancer who um, will format the inside pages. And then for this book, I had to design the cover myself and then also sent it to him. And so he formats it into the kind of file and like offsetting that you need for a book for like the bleeds and stuff around the pages. And so once he sends that file back, I just submit it to Amazon and then uh, you get to, you get to print a proof and then you can see it in book form before you really finalize it. Okay. And so like, do you have to get approved to get into that program or is it literally you just sign up for it and you're in? No. Yeah. You just sign up um, just like you would for a regular Amazon account. Um, So it's, it's pretty uh, simple process to get going. Yeah, uh, just a super cool. I didn't know that Amazon did that. I think that's a really good option for people that want to kind of get their feet wet with publishing their own book. Like that's awesome. And one one thing that the book led to happening in your life that I want to ask you about, or shortly after the book got published, is you got connected to Rory Kramer, right? Yeah. So um, I had responded to Rory's story one day. He w- he was talking about like manifesting, and I'm uh, super into like doing manifestation uh, guided meditations, and so. I had actually messaged him something about it and um, it caught his eye. And so we started talking via Instagram um, and then he called me one night. And so we had this conversation on the phone and kind of just went back and forth. And really I had told him I wrote this book. um, And so that was like the connecting piece to us, I think. And from that, we had met up in person. I gave him a couple copies of the books. We hung out for a bit. Um, and ever since then, we've stayed in contact as friends and um, shot photos together. So, but drawing back to that, really, the the book had set me up to make a connection with someone, which I think is like the most beautiful thing that could happen from any kind of art. Mm-hmm. And kind of taking that taking that that in mind, like how you just replied to one of the stories, which led to this friendship. Do you have you tried to do that again, or not even tried to? But is that just something you continue to do to try and engage with people in order to create new friendships and relationships, or is it kind of just a one-off thing that happened with Rory? Um, it just felt right with Rory. I just um, what he said was resonating with me at the time, and so I felt you know drawn to responding to him. I don't. I'm not seeking out to respond to people to hope they respond back, but. For me, it's like if I feel urged to say something that I think could benefit someone, whether on social media or in person, I am not someone that is going to feel reluctant to say it because um, I don't really think there's anything to lose um, if if it's all out of positivity. Mm-hmm. And with the book, when I read the title of the book, again, Moment to Whom It May Concern, Volume 1, is there going to be a Volume 2? Eventually. I think um, the Volume 2 will come naturally and I think I want to keep that series in kind of like a journal form and so whenever uh, something happens in my life where I've been journaling a lot about it and I think I can teach some lessons through it I think that would be a good time to do volume two um, and volume three and so on interesting so you don't have like a certain date like that you're planning right no, I think it will just come up naturally I know like for instance I'm journaling a lot right now about um, being in quarantine so 
I don't know if that would be something I'd want to put out, but for example, like if I'm journaling a lot every day and there's a lesson, that's something that I would consider putting into a book for other people. And when, whenever that moment does come where you decide to make the next volume and the volume after that, is it based off of like one specific journal or are you going to pull different lessons through like your last several journals to make a new book? Um, I think it would really depend on the situation and the, and what I want to teach. Ideally, I, I journal every day. Um, and so every year I have a journal for that specific year. And so I, I wouldn't expect for me to have to pull from multiple journals. I think it would all come from the same year. Interesting. And I kind of want to change gears a little bit here. I want to talk about van life. And when did you, so you said in college you were, you were camping a lot. Was that when you were kind of like packing the Volvo full of stuff and just going out for weekend trips? Yeah. So in college I had a Volvo wagon um, and I would just sleep in the back of it and bring a couple friends, pop some tents up. Um, and we'd just, you know, pack it with stuff for the weekend and, uh, either do a local trip just like near a beach or, um, you know, we, we've been up to like Big Sur in Southern California and places like that. Okay. And I've heard you say too, that one of the reasons that you kind of ultimately got the Volvo wagon and wanted to get your own van was because when you were six or seven, you'd sit and watch your dad pack the car before family camping trips. I was curious, what about your dad packing the car kind of made you grow attached to wanting to live that kind of lifestyle? Yeah. So my, my parents really ingrained the outdoors and nature and camping in all of us from such a young age. And um, I think I was just enamored by watching my dad kind of use this Tetris like method to pack the car for each camping trip. And although I wasn't able to help at the time, I think um, looking back on it, I was really learning like his style of getting things in the car. And it's really interesting because now I use that in, in my own um, adventures. And so I think, you know, the passion for camping really just links back to that whole experience as a child of, you know, going camping often um, and then continuing it through college. And then ultimately what was the catalyst what was the moment where you were like okay i need to get my own van now like when did that really set into something you were going to pursue actively yeah so my volvo's transmission um blew out when i after i graduated from college and that was kind of when i was like okay i've got to buy a new car and it seems like this is the time in my life where i have the most time to convert it um to co convert a camper van uh, so let's do it. And so, you know, I talked to my dad and he helped me find a van, um, up in Northern California and, um, the rest is history. Now I have a converted van. What? <laughs> so what, it's like, what kind of van is it? Uh, so it's just a Ford Econoline, um, kind of like what you'd see like an electrician use. Um, it's just com it completely gutted it of all like the, the worker type kind of shelves and um, walls that were in there. It's gutted, but when you got it, it wasn't gutted, right? Like it was full oh, no. of tools when you bought it, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it was full of too much stuff. Um, it had a ladder rack on top with a pipe box. Um, it had industrial shelving inside and then like this industrial wall behind the driver's seat. So the first plan of attack was to get all that stuff out, sell it, and then figure out how to get the ladder rack off the top, um, which was extremely he heavy, and also sell that. And successfully did that all in under two weeks, which was probably 10 times quicker than I imagined. And then I was able to put that money right back into the build. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. But I want to, I'm big on focusing on like keying in on specific moments in time. And so when you're driving that van back after picking it up, which is probably like seven, eight hours away, I'm guessing, 
when you're driving that van back with all these tools, like driving down the highway, everything's rattling in the back. You just made a huge purchase. Is there any buyer's remorse or like what's going through your mind when you're driving back by yourself with this van? 110% there was buyer's remorse. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. So I, I met my parents up in um, Monterey, California, which was about a seven ish hour drive um, in the van. And yeah, it was super loud. Everything was rattling. I wasn't sure if I had made the right decision. And I also didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I think I just bought it off the instinct. Um, so yeah, at the time driving down, I, it was just like, Oh, I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> but now, you know, I love it. And I, I couldn't imagine not having it. And when you ultimately, when you did convert it, you were focused on like a low cost build, right? And that's because you weren't intending to live in it full time. It was more just so for camping trips and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So the goal was to use it for camping trips, um, small road trips, and like, just like surf trips to the beach. Um, I never intended to have like running water in it or solar or electricity or a bathroom or a shower or anything like that. Um, so I just really wanted to keep it within my means and I didn't want to have to break the bank to do a project that I dreamt of. Um, and so I kept that angle on, on the build and I think I did a pretty well job at it. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a funny story. So I've been interested in, in van life for the last several years now. And when I was prepping for this podcast, I clicked on your tiny home tour that you did back in 2018 only to realize I'd actually watched that video back in 2018 when oh, it had been really? published. And it just kind of blew my mind. I thought that was so cool. Full circle, man. That's cool. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so can you kind of share with the people the process that you went through in order to gut the van and re uh, and then convert it? Like, how does it look like when you're doing it low cost, especially as someone who didn't have experience with power tools at that time? Yeah, so like you said, I had no experience with power tools, meaning um, the first drill I bought under my own dollar was um, for the build, um, which I'm saying that because if you don't have any experience, that doesn't mean you can't convert a van. And so the process really started was gutting it, um, cleaning the whole shell out, and then insulating the walls, and then putting um, wood paneling up to make um, new walls to make it feel like more like a, a home, if you will. And then laying down some carpet. And then I would actually go on trips um, in between each feature that I was building to really understand what I needed to support the type of adventure I wanted to go on. Um, and then from there, I started building out the, the bed, the table, and then now the cabinets that I have in there. Okay. So if you're not going to sharing exact numbers, that's okay. But I was just curious, how much did it cost to convert the van? Just to give people a context that it doesn't require like tens of thousands of dollars in order to create this adventure van. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm totally comfortable talking about that. I think that's a big part in um, feeling like you can do this. And so for me, I mean, I didn't keep track of everything, but I usually tell people the the build, and this is not including the purchasing the van, was probably around two to $3,000, um, which is definitely on the inexpensive side. And that's because I wasn't using, um, you know, like real kitchen appliances and, and everything like that. Is there ever a plan to fully convert the van so you can live in it full time with running water, electricity and a kitchen in there? So I don't think I'll ever live in a van um, full time. However, I will have another van. I think this van is perfect for the the part of my journey I'm at right now in my own life. But I think later down the road, um, once we have a family and, and things like that, we definitely want to invest in something a little bit bigger that can support more people. Mm -hmm. 
And how do you decide where to go with the van? Because you're not going, like I said, you're not living in the van full time. So how do you decide when's the time to fire up the van and take it on a trip? Um, so we, we definitely look at trying to do camping trips throughout the year. Um, obviously, right now we can't, but we try to do a trip a month, um, usually just something local um, for a weekend. And then usually every other year, we'll do a longer road trip. Uh, and then on the off year, we're usually traveling overseas. Okay. And so when what's the longer trips look like? Because you've pretty much, you've stuck primarily to the West Coast, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So most of our trips are in California. Um, Yosemite being the place that we go most. Uh, but we did a trip in, I believe, 2018, I want to say. Uh, and we went to Sedona, which is in Arizona. And then we also went up to a couple national parks, um, Zion, Bryce Canyon, and Grand Canyon. Um, and that was a full uh, 10-day trip. And you, you keep saying we and our. You're talking about your girlfriend, Nicole, correct? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. My girlfriend, Nicole, is... Um, my right hand co-pilot and um she's always on the trips with me how important is it to have someone on the trips with you that supports everything that you're doing uh i mean it's great it's it's awesome to not have to pull teeth <laughs> so it's it's nice to have someone that's on board with uh camping and everything that i'm passionate about and i think she had always been passionate about it too but i think she you know you, you need someone else to do something like that with. And um, so I think it's fun for both of us to have that um, sense of adventure. Mm-hmm. And similar to Europe, I'm curious about some crazy van life stories. I know like one that I saw on your Instagram was 8am having to dig the van out of two <laughs> feet of sand. Is there any other stories like that or sticky situations you've gotten into doing this? Um, I mean, that one was funny because we were in the desert 8am. We're trying to drive out and the, the van sunk in the sand and uh, Nicole was very courageous and decided to start digging the van out um at 8 a.m and it was freezing cold so i I definitely think that was one of the more like hilarious uh experiences but i think one of the most epic and crazy experiences was i was gave myself a personal assignment to chase a winter storm into yosemite valley I've, i've always wanted to see that place in its full uh winter coat and so we did that and we drove to the valley knew the storm was going to come into the weekend we got into the valley bes- right before the day before the storm came in and then the next day we woke up to pretty much a blizzard it was it was near wide out um most insane experience i've ever had and everyone else left the valley and there was only a handful of people there that were um looking to you know like rough it out until the morning and once the morning came uh, zero regrets that's awesome that's so cool and you turn experiences like that with into long form stories on your website that you couple in the photos that you take along these experiences when did you start doing these long form stories yeah so these long form stories are called trip reports i actually started doing them when i got the van and so on that first trip um that we did into alabama hills california i wanted to find a way to couple my writing with my photography and so i felt that I could take these um, trips that we were doing and share these experiences with other people that may not um, ever experience them or just to share to share. Uh, and so, yeah, I started writing long form stuff when I bought the van. Okay. And, and ultimately like, do you, when you write these stories, do you put them together while you're on the trip? Like, are you writing then or do you just more so write them after as like a reflection? Mostly after, but I think a lot of the writing process happens on the trip without actually writing. I think 
um, a big part of writing in general is absorbing your surrounding environment and um, looking beyond what's directly in front of you, like looking into the meaning of things. And I think that's this, this type of writing is kind of what put me in the direction of being an introspective writer and um, more so in the direction of what can you learn from out the outdoors and what can you learn from nature. And another place that you share these experiences and your learnings, one of course is through the trip reports, but also through your Instagram. I want to talk about your primary Instagram right now, Jordan at Jordan Tarver. You have about 9.2 thousand followers. What did you do to grow your account to that size? Just consistent posting, consistent sharing of quality content. I know I started as a, a strictly a photography account before I had found the passion for writing. So I was posting a lot of adventure photography um, and it's evolved, um, which I am glad it has because I think it's a, an accurate representation of who I am. And now it includes um, a lot of my works of writing. So yeah, just posting consistently, uh, engaging with other users um, and making sure that everything you're sharing is intentional. Was there a moment, was it maybe when you were just strictly a photography account, but was there a moment where you decided that you want to try and grow this account or did it all just kind of happen organically? It just kind of happened in college. I think um, shooting a lot with my fr friends, Ryan and Troy, um, we all were just super into sharing our works of photography and um, there was never like the goal was never to, you know, like have a, a large following or anything like that. It was just mostly to share what I was doing. Fair enough. And so as someone who started originally as a photography Instagrammer, but since pivoted a little bit, I was curious how important having a perfect grid is to you. Is that something you concern yourself with a lot, making sure that everything kind of flows cohesively when someone's looking at your account? Or do you more so just focus on individual posts and making sure, like you said, you post with intention? Um, I personally focus on both. I think um, I like to have an artistic grid because I think it challenges my creativity. And I think nowadays with the rise of social media, um, basically your Instagram is your portfolio um, and people look at it as a professional portfolio. And so for a single post, I look at intention of what am I saying in the caption and what kind of message am I delivering to my audience and always making sure that whoever sees the photo or words that they're going to leave with something positive. And then on a, a bird's eye view of the feed, um, I definitely look at cohesiveness um, to kind of show my artistic abilities and also challenge my creativity to do something different. And there's one thing too, like you said there when you like to post with intention, but that's not necessarily just in terms of engagement. Like you said, it's with the caption, make sure people come away with some form of positivity because I kind of did an overview of your account and to, it looks to me that your top performing content is your landscape shots, your adventure photography, but you still post the other content anyways. How do you, de how do you determine what the balance is of what you post? Like when do you post these landscape shots? When do you post a quote versus a photo of yourself? Like how do you determine that? Um, kind of just on the flow, whatever feels right. I don't think um, what I post is not driven by the engagement I get. And I think that's why I have a, a healthy relationship with social media because I'm not driven by my likes or followers. I'm driven by what's the message I'm giving to other people and are they going to get any benefit from it? Um, and that's why I still share the stuff that doesn't quote unquote do well, right? And I think that's important for all people because I think social media can have a very negative impact um, on yourself and it can be a dangerous place if you treat it um, in the wrong way. And so I um, do my absolute best to focus on the message and not the likes. 
One thing I was curious too, when it comes to your usage of Instagram specifically, is you have multiple different Instagram accounts. I kind of want to run through each one and I want you to kind of explain what the purpose of each one is for. The first one being at the story on wheels, which is obviously your van life one. Why do you have that as opposed to just combining all your van life stuff in with at Jordan Tarver? Um, so yeah, the story on wheels is strictly the van content. There is a very, very large um, van life community um, out there in the world. And I think it's a great place for me to connect with those people. And I have built um, a little community of my own over there. And so that that helps me make sure the things I'm posting um, and the people that follow me, they get the thing that they came to follow me for. So if I was posting that stuff on my main account, maybe the other content wouldn't resonate with them. And so this allows people who follow the van account to really resonate with everything that I'm sharing. Okay. And then the second one, which you mentioned earlier, the project around the Note Collective. When did the Note Collective start? Can you explain to people what exactly that looks like? Yeah, the Note Collective started, um, I think, a, a little over a year ago, I want to say. I was at my girlfriend's parents' house and I had written a note um, in my journal. And I think it said, if kindness is currency, how rich would you be? I think that was the first note I wrote. And I was like, ooh, that's good. Like, I, I should share this. I think other people could benefit from it. So I started um, the Note Collective and the the goal of the Note Collective is to encourage other people to be the best version of themselves one note at a time. Um, and again, leading with intention um, on that feed, the whole idea is if someone sees this note, like can they leave um, with something positive? Mm-hmm. And then so why again, back to a similar question, why do you post it in a separate account versus on your own Instagram because I would think back originally you did post them on your account but then you made this separate Instagram yeah so it started as like a personal project on my own and then I I really thought I could build um, a community um, that was looking for those kind of positivity and uplifting thought-provoking quotes and just like I said with the story on wheels stuff I really think because we can't uh, specifically cater our feeds to our followers meaning we can't only show them the posts that they want to have. I think having a specific uh, Instagram for a project like that allows me to make sure I'm delivering the exact content um, to the people that want to see it. Mm -hmm. And there's two other Instagrams you have as well that I want to talk about. The first one being the Instagram for you deserve this shit, which is your upcoming book. When is that book coming out? And then how long have you been working on an Instagram to promote it? The book um, is kind of up in the air. I, I want to make sure we're through this crisis right now and people, um, you know, have the the headspace and the mind space to, you know, open up to a new book and a new product. So that is undecided. Um, but I am slowly marketing the book just by sharing the quotes um, on the Instagram. Again, looking to positively impact people any way that I can. And talk to me a little bit more about this book. What is it about? Because obviously it's different from Moment. It's not necessarily based off of your journals. So what does this one look like and how does it differ? Yeah, so this book is definitely a self-help book. I think it shares a common theme with the moment um, using my past experiences to um, create a teaching moment. And You you Deserve This Shit is a title. Um, It's a toolkit for self-discovery and becoming the best version of you. And so like what is self-discovery and why is it important? Like self-discovery is the journey of finding your authentic self. And I think when we can get to that spot where we know who we are or who we're supposed to be, that gives us um, the most, you know, the best situation to live the life that we've always dreamt of. 
And what inspired you to write this book? I think I just had gained so much of my own experiences from my past travels and writing the other book. And I felt like I had a, a really positive message to share. Um, and I almost feel for me personally, if I know something that could benefit someone else and I don't share it, I feel like that is um, a disservice to other people. And I think that's really what I want to do with this book was share what I knew that could help other people. And I'm curious with how the process for this book, putting it together, differed from Moment. Because Moment, like we talked about, was based off of your journal entries and you had something to pull off of when you were writing it versus this one's not based off of your journal entries. So how does that look? Like, what's that process? How does it differ from one book to the other? Yeah, I mean, it, it all starts with an outline, um, kind of outlining your ideas. What is the message that you're trying to deliver? Why is this book going to be important to someone? Why do they want to read it? I think those are all things you want to consider. Um, and so I, I actually divided this book up into three parts, which are the three pillars of self-discovery, um, and that's comfort zones, intentional living and awareness. And so within those three different sections, I then brainstorm kind of the lessons that I want to teach that could help people understand why those uh, three things are important and how they can really tap into them. Okay. And are you, are you publishing this one through Amazon as well? Like similar to last time? Yeah. So I'll be self-published publishing this one through Amazon. Um, and then I'll also be, once it's published, I'll be uh, sending queries out to different literary agents to see what um, what the market looks like. So what does that look like then when you reach out to literary agents? Like, do they try and get your book with a publisher or anything like that? Like, what does that look like? What, why do you do that? Yeah, so the idea of a literary agent is someone that can help you um, kind of get in contact with a publishing house if they think your book is you know worthy of going through a big house publication. Um, so it's definitely difficult. It's definitely all cold emailing, but I think um, it wouldn't be a good idea not to try because it never hurts to try. No, absolutely. Right. Like the, the thing I always tell people is if you never ask and the answer is definitely going to be no, but if you do ask, there's a chance the answer could be yes. Yes. I mean, I, I have the same mentality. It's, it's just like, my thing is like, why not? Right. And it's like, why wouldn't I? Because it's not going to kill me, you know, like, and who knows, who knows what opportunity will become, will come from asking, you know, whatever question you're going to ask from someone, you might even get something in return that you w wouldn't expect at all. And so I always, you know, keep, keep that mentality back in my head. Like, why not? Why wouldn't I try? Mm -hmm. Kind of on the same vein there a little bit. I was curious as to why you asked to come on my podcast. Are you doing outreach right now in order to promote your book? Or like, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I think right now I'm um, trying to spread kind of the work that I'm doing on all fronts. Um, but obviously, most importantly, sharing my story um, and letting people learn who I am and, and maybe it resonates with them and they want to support the work I do and they can learn something um, from me that will benefit their life. That's awesome. One other thing too, I noticed you recently started a YouTube account. I think you have two videos up right now. Is that kind of similar to your book on hold right now until the coronavirus crisis gets resolved? Um, so I originally started the YouTube account because I've created some um, van life specific content. I'm building a, an adventure landing page i'll call it on my on my website right now which is going to house a another landing page just for the van life community and so i have a ton of videos that i'm putting up on there so they can live on youtube and you know interlink them on my site to help people in that community but i think once the book is launched i have some ideas of what i want to do for video content around the book um, that could definitely help people 
get a glance into what the book's about before purchasing. Can you give a little teaser as to what those videos are going to look like? Because they're obviously going to be very different from the van life. Yeah. I mean, the idea is to have something called author's chair, um, which will be an inside look into the author's mind behind the book. And so in those videos, I think what I want to do, and this is very fresh idea, I think um, a lot's to come through more brainstorming, but the idea is to read into a chapter or maybe even just a small passage and then have me from my author's perspective explain what that really means and what the lesson is. Um, and so people kind of get a more detailed look um, beyond the words and the pages. Interesting. Would you ever do a podcast companion to the book? I actually made a tweet about that, I think this morning or yesterday night, maybe about how podcasts make great companions to different forms of media. So is that something you'd ever look at doing, like a companion podcast to your book? Yeah, I definitely think that's an idea. Um, I think the author's chair is something that could actually live on a podcast as well. Um, I just haven't looked too much into it, but I definitely wouldn't count it out. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned there too that you're going to put the van life stuff on your website. How long have you been working on and building your personal website? I think I've had my personal website since 2013. Um, so that's seven years. I think I would say in the last, um, I used it heavily when I was traveling. I was also, in addition to journaling, I was um, doing a weekly blog, long form blogs on my site, kind of about the lessons I was learning. And then, so ever since then, I've been working on it more often than I was in the beginning. Uh, but ever like even recently, I think with time, I, I, you know, I get more involved with my website. Mm -hmm. And I was curious too, on your website, I was looking around on it. You have an email newsletter. What do you use to host your newsletter? What goes into that newsletter? Yeah. So I, I create my newsletter through MailChimp, um, uh, which is a free, uh, like newsletter service. And the newsletter is called ideas for you. Basically it's a weekly newsletter every Thursday. Um, where I deliver four ideas um, for my audience. And those can range from anything. It's kind of like either the things that I'm thinking about during the week, some things I'm reflecting on. Uh, maybe it's a quote from my book um, or a quote from my adventure story. Um, it really can range from anything. But again, like all of my work, lead with intention um, and have a positive impact. And what are you doing to drive signups to your email list? I've asked this kind of selfishly because I'm working on my website right now, trying to launch it. I think an email list is something that I'm interested in starting. So I'm curious how you drive people to sign up for it. Yeah, I think with emails, um, the, obviously the first way to start is have a landing page for the signup form and then drive people through your social media. Um, so Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, all that stuff, you can drive a lot of signups and that's where I get most of my signups. Um, and then you can also use like signup forms on your website and also um, pop-ups if you're writing like blogs or anything like that on your website. And that could generate more organic signups, um, meaning that you don't have to do the work, the pop-ups there and someone will sign up if they, if they want to sign up. Um, another tip for you and anyone else, there, else out there looking to grow their email list, I think content upgrades are an awesome way to get email signups, meaning that you offer something of value for free. Um, to someone and they sign up and get a downloadable PDF of what, whatever that is you create. So for example, for you, you could create a guide on 10 easy steps to start a podcast ebook, call it an ebook, right? And put in a PDF form, make it all pretty. Um, and then so if someone wants that, they put their email in and then they get an email with that downloadable item. Okay. What's like an example of one you've done in the past? Yeah, I have a content upgrade that is an optimal living toolkit. Um, so it's 
think it's like a 10 page ebook about things that I use um, on the regular that help me live an optimal life and help me elevate my lifestyle, which includes different journal exercises, different meditation practices, um, areas where you can get inspired with my work. Um, so it kind of just offers people what I do on my routine and daily that helps me live the life I'm living. Okay. And so you, like, we just went over a lot of different tools. We use Instagram. We talked about your website, email, newsletter, your YouTube. I know you also have a couple of Twitter accounts. What are you spending the most time on in terms of developing your personal brand? I think most of my time is spent on Instagram and my website. I think those two things are kind of like the drivers of my work. Um, I spend the most time on my main Instagram, Jordan Tarver, and then also my van life um, Instagram story on wheels. I think those are kind of like my wheelhouses. Um, where I can capture the most amount of work I do. Um, but I also enjoy doing stuff on, you know, Note Collective and You Deserve the Shit, but I think I spend most of my time on that main one. And you recently started a new Instagram as well, Tarver Music. <laughs> yeah, so music's been ingrained in my life from a very young age. My parents bought me and my siblings instruments when we were probably, I, was, I would say I was around like eight, eight or nine. Um, I got an electric guitar. My brother got a bass, my other brother got a set of drums, my sister got a guitar, and we started taking private music lessons um, back then. So it's always been ingrained with me, but I kind of lost touch with it for a while. Um, had some waves of um, doing it in college, and then now I'm kind of reacquainting with it and learning the keys. Um, I think one of my biggest callings in life is to be a performing, performing artist. Um, I've always wanted to sing and make my own music. So that Instagram was started to encourage me to start sharing um, just random things I'm working on now um, and then eventually let it evolve into whatever music project I'll use later on. That's awesome, man. I was curious too, if through your social media, your website or email newsletter, if you're making money off of any of it. Uh, no, it's strictly and put out there just for, you know, giving people access to stuff that could help them elevate their life. I think the way I usually make money off my content um, is like my book sales. Um, and then I have some affiliate links um, related in the adventure world. That's awesome. But I wanted to use that question as a segue to your full-time job. You work for Smith Fit Small Business, correct? Like that's the name of the company? Yeah. And so what's, can you kind of explain to everybody what, what the website is for and what your role with the company is. Yeah, so Fit Small Business, um, we are a digital publication. Our headquarters are in New York City. Um, we write actionable content for real small business owners. So our market is any small, small business owner looking to learn pretty much anything out of business. We write everything from A to Z. Um, starting a business, what POS systems you need, credit cards, banking, uh, HR stuff you name it, it's on our site. Um, and so that's really our goal um, with that is to make sure that we're writing content that can help real people. And you've worked your way up, right? Like you started, I believe a year and a half ago as a junior writer. And today you're the content editor and the manager, right? Yeah. So I started as a junior writer in uh, 2018. Um, and then I was promoted about six months later to a staff writer. And then today my role is the content editor and manager of the credit cards and banking category. I'm curious, how then do you bring the same level of enthusiasm to writing for Fit Small Business as you do for writing your own content, whether it be on your website or in your book? Because they're two very different things. So how do you bring the same level into each of them? Yeah, I mean, very different things in the sense of the kind of content we're delivering, but very similar in the way that we deliver our content, both myself and the company. 
um, everything we do is with intention. We want to actually help real people. We want to actually provide real beneficial answers. And um, I work for an incredible company that has an incredible culture with incredible people. Um, and I love my job. I wholeheartedly love my job and I love everyone I work with. And so I think having that kind of relationship with my work and understanding the amount of impact we have um, on a nationwide uh, level really motivates me to have that same enthusiasm, whether I'm working on jordantarver.com or fitsmallbusiness.com. It's awesome to hear that you love your job that much. And it's cool too, because it draws on a little bit of what you went to school for in terms of finance. And I have a quote written down by you and it says you, in terms of a job, you should cross a passion and your knowledge and intersect those two lines in the middle. And whatever, whatever that intersection point is, is what you pursue, should pursue as a job. So I'm curious as to how you found fit small business. One, because it's the perfect job where there's the intersection of your passion and your knowledge, but also because it's a remote job that I feel like a lot of people that want to travel full-time are looking for full-time or full-time remote jobs. How did you find that opportunity? Yeah. So I, I think I, I lucked out a little bit. My brother, um, my oldest brother, Evan, actually works at the company as well. And he was already working at the company for about two years before I came on board. Um, and so he linked me up when there was an opening spot on the finance team to write some finance content. And I think that was kind of like the light bulb moment of, whoa, this is, this is the point where I can take that passion um, and take something I actually didn't think I was going to use, finance, and really cross them. And now I'm writing online finance content. That's awesome. And I want to ask about the life of someone that works remotely full-time. I mean, I guess most people in the current state of the world are working remotely full-time. But but normally, what does your schedule look like as a remote worker? Yeah, so I, I've actually been working remote before this job. I've been um, full-time remote for three years now. Um, and so the transition was definitely tough. Um, but I think one thing that I found super helpful was retaining working hours as I would if I was in the office, So, which helps me give structure to my day. So I still work um, around 8.30. I start at 8.30 or 9 and work till about 5. Um, and that helps me you know, like stay on task, not get distracted, um, and, and still feel like I'm going into work. Okay. And so you also, I, I believe, I can't remember where I heard this. might have been Bobby's podcast. might have been your website. But you time block your schedule, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm huge into time blocking. I think when I first started working remote, I wasn't, and I could see my time getting away from me. Um, and so I'm an early riser. I'm out of bed around five thirty um, to get my day started. I love to do some sort of personal creative work before I head into uh, my full time gig, and I think that helps me get my gears turning um, to produce at my highest level at work. Uh, and yeah, so I, I set up my day in, in blocks of time. Um, usually around an hour to two hours, depending on the task. And that keeps me on task the whole day and it yields the highest um, production levels. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't travel and work at the same time, right? Like you have your home base in LA and then you travel when you're not working, right? Right. Yeah. So I, I primarily, um, if I'm traveling, I'm going to be taking vacation. I think for me, I, when I travel, I love to really just in just dive into being somewhere different and not focusing on work. Um, so I, I make sure to separate those. I think you can do both. And I think that's a, a personal preference and that's something people can, um, you know, choose on their own. But personally, um, I, I like having my home base here in LA and working out of my house and then, you know, using travel as that getaway. Mm -hmm. 
I wanted to ask you about your writing routine, both for Fit Small Business and for your personal content and books. What does that look like? Like, how does it differ? Do you have to be in a specific spot, listen to a certain kind of music? Like, what does that look like for you? Um, you know, I don't have a crazy routine like some people do of being in a certain place and listening to music and having this headspace. I think for me, um, I like to write in the morning. I think that's kind of like my one thing that I have with the writing process. So I do. Um, for for example, for the book that I was writing, I would write for an hour every day before work. And then I would use um, a large chunk on a Saturday to go write at a coffee shop. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of my process. I appreciate writing in the morning, but um, nothing to do with like the music or anything like that. And how do you get through writer's block? Uh, I mean, I feel like writer's block is definitely a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I, I do think you can't have creative blocks and stuff like that. But, you know, if, if you are having a creative block, get up, walk around, um, clear your mind, go for a walk outside. Um, I think the worst thing to do is definitely sit at your computer and just keep beating your head over it. Um, and so for me, if I do have those moments, um, which I feel like are slim, uh, just getting up and getting out is really beneficial for myself. And then I want to talk about long term. Your goal is necessarily to become like an influencer or a van life influencer or anything like that. This goal could have changed at this point in time, but your goal is to write stories for big publications like National Geographic, right? Yeah, I think I have I have many dreams I'm following. Um, and right now, my two biggest dreams I'm following are, are music and writing. And so let's focus on the writing uh, dream. And I think long term the ultimate goal is to be, like you said, writing kind of the adventure stories, the trip reports I do of my own trips, but on a, a larger scale um, for a big publication, whether it be National Geographic or someone else. And why is the goal to write for a big publication like National Geographic versus trying to grow what you have to being big and that being a publication on its own? Well, I think when I talk about writing for um, a, a big publication, I I think my dream is to have my writing up to a quality where people um, want that kind of style for their company. And so maybe they'll hire, hire me on like a contract um, basis where I can be working with several different publications. So it's still my brand and it's still my writing. However, I'm you know helping other companies deliver their message through my, through my travels or through going on trips with their, their people. Okay, I got you. That's awesome. And I want to ask more so, kind of pivoting again here, to living a more meaningful life. And I know you, you, your purpose is to wake up, to live a creative and adventurous life and encourage others to be the best versions of themselves. And I know you write that down every single morning. Why is that your purpose? I mean, I, I really think that's a snapshot of everything I do in my life. Um, I wake up to live a creative life. I wake up and I write and I produce content that inspires people. And I feel like creativity is it's so ingrained in who I am and I don't know where I'd be without it and I think um, my van travels and over the seas overseas travel that kind of is like the adventure part and I think adventure brings me so much joy so making sure that I'm always doing it keeps me happy and keeps me excited and then encouraging everyone other people to be the best versions of themselves I think everyone should have an opportunity to become their best version and to unlock their uh, maximum version of their character and so if I can be someone that encourages and inspires other people to be great, I feel like I've done my job here on earth. And when it comes to living a more meaningful life, what like 
this might be kind of hard to quantify and a one, one answer, but what is kind of like your tips or like three to five things you'd recommend to kind of get started on the journey to living a more meaningful life? Yeah. I think the thing for me is like when people come and ask that question, like I always tell them like, go buy a journal. Like that should be step one. I think journaling has such a powerful um, result of discovering things about yourself and learning about who you are. And I think it's a great place to start to connect with, um, you know, your inner being and your spirit. And um, so that's what I always tell people to get started on that journey. And I think from there, you can kind of see like what directions you want to go. Um, but for me, I think living a meaningful life is, you know, following your passions, understanding your purpose, and then also being able to deliver that purpose, um, whether that be on a small or a large scale. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you to one way that or one way, I mean, that I'm starting to understand in terms of having not necessarily a meaningful life, but one thing that I've found important with my day is a morning and night routine. And I know this is something like you have a solid morning and night routine as well. And I was curious if you could share what that looks like. Yeah. So I would say my my morning routine, routine is much more dialed than my night routine. I think my night routine kind of fluctuates. Um, but let's, let's stick with uh, morning routine. So I'm usually up at 530 um, right now with everything closed down and um, at home isolation. I've been getting up and spending some time stretching and just kind of waking up the body. And then once I'm done stretching, I'm I'm writing in my journal for 15 minutes. I usually do either some sort of gratitude journaling or just stream of conscious, just kind of like get the brain going. And then after that, um, I'll hop into some sort of at-home movement workout, go on a jog, something just to, you know, start the day with movement. And then I usually try to get in like an hour of self-creative work um, before jumping into my full-time gig. Got you. And where does manifestation come into play in turn throughout your day? Yeah, so I usually do, there, there's definitely a, a small window of meditating um, in that that time frame of my morning routine. And I do a lot of manifestation me- guided meditations because I'm such a dreamer and I'm such a, a forward thinker of envisioning my future. And I think the best way to predict your future um, is to create it. And I think manifestation stuff allows me to understand uh, what it is that I value to have in my future. So when manifestation and like, and how in terms of how you practice it, do you just like think the same thoughts every day or do you say the same sentence every day? Like practically, how does that look like? For you, yeah, I've been using actually the same two guided meditations for probably about two years now, um, and so that helps me kind of guide me through a practice. And then I think journaling about things you want to manifest into your life, um, writing them every day, kind of like how I write my purpose. The idea with that purpose is to always be manifesting that purpose into my day and into the rest of my life. So I think there's definitely you know like a grab bag of things you can do, um, but I personally love the guided meditations I do, and it helps me. Um, kind of stay in touch with those feelings. Another thing you do that I was curious about was you do a self-reflection exercise every year. This is something that I'm curious about personally and I want to start doing. So I'm curious as to how you go about doing that. Yeah, so I created this exercise myself, um, kind of taking tips from different people and finding what works for me. And so at the end of the year, I kind of review, I like to look at all the highlights that happened in, in the in the past 12 months and what that creates is just like a long bowl list of really awesome moments. And the purpose of that is to remind you like how great of the year you had um, and focus on all the positive things because we do so many incredible things, but I think they get overlooked very easily. Uh, and so if you can look at what you did for the last 12 months, I think that really lets you hone in 
um, and appreciate the life that you have. And then I have a quadrant exercise I use um, that kind of lets you address like the lessons you've learned, some questions you want to always ask yourself to make sure you're aligned with your beliefs. Um, And then also like uh, looking at the things that you want to pursue in the coming year. And so this exercise as a whole kind of really lets me make sure that everything I did in the previous year, I take all the positives and build on them in the, in the upcoming year. And speaking of what you want to accomplish in the upcoming year, kind of using that as a jumping off point to my next question, which is what's next for you? I mean, next would be releasing this book. I think it's been, it's been a year and a month in the, uh, the whole process. So it's, it's getting that off the ground and into the world. And then once that book is done, I know um, music has been um, a huge part of my life recently, so I'm going to keep working on that. Um, but I do have some ideas of, of creating um, a personalized journal that I want to put out, and, and that would kind of be in the same realm of helping people find their purpose, helping people find their passion in life. Um, so that's definitely a project that is um, on the board, and I think that's something that would most likely happen and come out in 2021. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to both of those. And I do have the full intent of purchasing both moment and you deserve this shit. I've recently, I recently really got into my Kindle. I got one for Christmas and since getting into quarantine, I've fallen in love with reading again. So it's crushing through a ton of books that I haven't had the chance to read yet that I purchased already. And moment is going to be on that list. I wanted to let you know that, but with that in mind, I was curious to like, could you share some books you would recommend? that you've read yeah i mean um so I, i'm just now getting into like adventure uh fiction but i think for a large part of my life i read a lot of self-help books which kind of got me to where i am now and um being able to write in that way some of the ones that i have um on my nightstand and on my dresser in my office that i'm actually looking at right now that i love and you know would recommend to everyone is creative calling by chase jarvis um this is a book about finding your creativity, um, even if you don't think you're creative. I think it's a book everyone should read. Uh, another one I love is The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, um, The Compound Effect, and then How to Win Friends and Influence People. I think those are really the four books that I always recommend to people looking for stuff they want to read about self-help. That's awesome. I actually just bought How to Win Friends and Influence People oh. for 76 cents on the Kindle, so really? I'm looking forward to that. Dude, yeah. it's like the book. Everyone should read it for sure. 76 cents is a steal. <laughs> I, I know. I've heard people talk about this when I saw it for 76 cents. I was like, I have three more books to read before I get here, but I'm going to pull the trigger anyways. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely one of those books that you read once and it's you probably should read it every couple of years just because it's so important um, to life. I really, I really believe it. I'm definitely looking forward to reading it. And before we wrap up here, I want to ask you the same standard set of questions I ask everybody. I used to call it rapid fire, but they're not necessarily the most rapid fire questions. And then I started calling it the Q&A, but then I realized the entire podcast is a Q&A, so that really makes no sense. But the first question is you're going to dinner and you can take three people. It could be anybody dead or alive. Who do you take to dinner? That's a good one, man. Um, I think I'd take Kevin Hart. He is um, a very interesting and hardworking individual, and I love to learn from him. Uh. I think I would also, you know, that's honestly, it's, it's tough for me. There's so many people I look up to in so many different facets of my life. Uh, I don't know anyone off the top of my head right now, but I would definitely take a musician to, to kind of pick their brain on music and their style of songwriting. Um, and then I think I would, I would take my, my future self um, if, I can, if I can do that and, and learn from, you know, 
what's to come in my life and what I need to do now to get where I'm supposed to be. That's cool. No one's ever said your future self, which I really like that answer. And two, I'm surprised that no one's ever said Kevin Hart yet to this point. I'm 86 episodes in and I don't think anybody's ever said Kevin Hart. So yeah. I'm super surprised because that seems like an obvious one. He is an animal. That, that guy is another specimen and he is doing so much all the time. So it'd be really fascinating to learn from him. What is some of the best advice you've ever gotten? Be yourself. I think that is the thing that everyone needs to do in life. What is one thing about you that people wouldn't expect? Um, that there was a one, there was a point in my life where I was not confident at all. Interesting. And so was it through journaling and everything you've done that's allowed you to develop that confidence? Yeah. It's, it, it's just been like the tireless years of creative self-work that have gotten to me, you know, where I am today. And so, you know, a combo of traveling and, um, going on that, that trip and journaling and writing a book and challenging myself to live outside my comfort zone. I, kept, I think it's really like a combo of all that stuff. Mm. What is one thing that's so important everybody needs to know? Follow your instincts. I think you, your gut and your intuition um, know what you need to know. And if you can really hone into that and tap into it, you can um, really discover some amazing things in your life. For the final question, I like to flip the script a little bit. And it's not me, or sorry, it's not me asking the question, it's you asking the question, but it's not to me. So pretend you have a crystal ball and this crystal ball will give you the answer to any question. What is one question you'd want to know the answer to? Am I on the right path? Okay. I like it. That's a good question to have. But with that, I want to thank you so much for taking time to be on this podcast. I want to give you the floor. Where can the people find you? Where can they find your book? Where will they be able to find the new book coming up? Plug everything and anything you got right now. Yeah, man. First off, thanks for having me. This has been awesome. Um, I'm really glad we can connect even at a time like this. Um, so thank you. And for those listening that want to find my work, uh, jordantarver.com is my website. Um, on Instagram, I'm at jordantarver. You can find pretty much all the projects I'm working on in my bio there that link out to those Instagrams. Um, my, my book is coming out hopefully sometime at the end of 2020, um, maybe 2021. If you want to stay tuned on those updates, you can follow at you deserve this shit on Instagram, um, where I'll be doing all the book updates and keep you up to date. So if you're interested to follow my work at Jordan Tarver on Instagram, and I can't wait to connect with you. Awesome. I had an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I want to thank you once again for taking time to be on the show. And I want to thank everybody for listening, whether you listen the entire way through or you only listen to bits and pieces. I really appreciate you taking time to check this out. Everyone do me a big favor. Go and follow Jordan. Go and buy his book. I'll make sure everything's linked in the show notes down below. If you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. My DMs are always open. And if you'd like to follow the podcast, you can find us on instagram and at my social life podcast or on youtube by searching up my social life thank you once again for listening everybody we'll talk soon